the incomparable. Number 244, April 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. We're here for another edition of our comic book club. We're talking about two uh, limited series, one from Marvel, one from DC. They're both from the mid-90s-ish. Both feature art by Alex Ross. Um, I, I stopped reading comics after Watchmen came out because I thought like suddenly all other comics were just a but a a pale imitation of the greatness that was Watchmen and I I also was uh, going to college and uh, wanted to pretend that I wasn't act like I wasn't a comic book reader and I didn't know the detailed history of everybody who was in the X-Men so uh, in the mid 90s I discovered Marvels on a bookshelf at a uh, at a bookstore on, on the on the shelf and I saw it and I thought oh wow that looks really cool and I bought it and that was essentially my re-entry in very slowly but that was my re-entry into the comics world and and a year or two later I, I saw Kingdom Come on the on, on, on the stand at a bookstore and we had bookstores they were still in business back in the 20th century and uh, and I bought it too and was uh, it's a very different kind of story from Marvel's, but also really interesting. Same art, obviously, in that this is Alex Ross, or at least the same artist, and uh, a, a story the likes of which I did not uh, expect from DC Comics. So I think these are really interesting books that are from they're of a time and they're of an artist, and I think they're worth talking about. And you can pick them up. And read them because they're self-contained, which is also really nice. Let me introduce the people who are going to talk about this stuff with me tonight. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser, of course, always here for Comic Book Club. Hi, Lisa. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we, we have a big, big crowd for this Comic Book Club, which is great. Chip Sutter is out there. Hi, Chip. Hi, Jason. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hello, John Boy. Uh, Monty <laughs> Ashley also out there. Hi, Monty. Hi, Jason and Lisa and Chip. Okay, let's see if we can do this. Moises <laughs> Julian is out there. Hi, Moises. Jason, how are we going to handle all of the truth and justice in these comics? Uh, I, I can't handle the truth, but I can handle the justice. <laughs> I can handle the justice, though, so that's okay. And uh, and who did I forget? Perhaps it's Erica Ensign, maybe? Maybe. Oh, oh it's my you. gosh. Oh, Let me it is you. Right. <laughs> Confirmed it is Erica Ensign. Hello. Hello, I'm happy to be here and be your non-expert comic book reader. That's a, a, you know, uh, as I read Kingdom Come and I realize that the footnotes are flying right by me and I can't understand a a single one of them, I have that that moment. (laughs) There's there's a whole set of annotations for Kingdom Come. If you want to read it, there's somebody who's painstakingly detailed every panel so you you can get every so you can get every single one of the um, the easter eggs i'll give you one example why is there a giant penny in the bat cave well there's a reason i don't care what the reason is but there's a reason every version of the bat cave you lost your Mm -hmm. mind that one's easy it's sugar and spice being in a panel that doesn't make any sense (laughs) one of the biggest arguments for reading the annotations is without them i would not have realized that zan and Jana are now waiters at at the local superhero dive bar or that the village people became um, superheroes. Looking at my 1997 vintage trade paperback of Kingdom Come, I don't see <laughs> yeah. all these uh, these footnotes you're talking about. Oh, they're on the internet. No, no, no. Yeah, you have to. No, it has oh, to. You, yeah, you Third have to party. switch between your screen and uh, and your and your trade paperback, yeah. as it were. Marvels has footnotes. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. No, that's what if you really want to nerd out. Um, I and I don't. <laughs> he said on his comic book <laughs> podcast. Yes, indeed. One of the reasons I picked these books for the comic book club is because to me, they're kind of the flip side of the same question, which is what does it mean 
to live in a world that has both superpowered it's people true. and and mortal people and kingdom come tackles this theme from the angle of what are your rights and responsibilities as a superpowered being who are you accountable to and marvels tackles it from the angle of what are your rights and responsibilities as a human being when literally the next generation of 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 sentient beings to walk the earth is is busy bursting into flames or 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 being x-men or being spider-man all around you so it's and, and it's the protagonist the in both is a cranky old guy. Pretty much the protagonist. <laughs> oh. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot that's thematically similar about them, but there's enough th- about their approach that's just different enough. Because one of the things I find fascinating about Kingdom Come is how heavily um, Wade and Ross mine back catalogs and um, use them to create a whole raft of new characters. And and they essentially invent like a third of the characters in this book are essentially invented out of whole cloth with them extrapolating. Yeah, these characters had kids, and that's what this is what they are. Whereas in Marvel's, it's kind of a love letter to Marvel's creative history. And mm-hmm. um, and it ends on, I find it actually ends on a faintly unsettling note. Oh, seriously. Yeah, seriously. it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's you know, if you read the two of them, like Kingdom Come is this real catharsis. And, and by the end of it, you can almost see like a freeze frame and then some 1980s ballad will start as the credits begin to roll. <laughs> but like Marvel's, you get to the last two pages and you're like, oh, whoa. Yeah. This this is happening, and that's so. that's really I, I think that's also really emblematic of the place that both publishers were when these things were uh, coming out. DC has always been, you know, the 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 gods among us, the awe and wonder, that sort of thing. Marvel's always been grounded in reality, grounded in New York, and things like that. So in in, in these comics, you've got Marvel's, which is uh, all which is basically human a human's eye view story and kingdom come which is a little bit less so because we've got a lot more scenes with the superheroes and things like that so i i I see them as representing what each company was trying to do with their comics at the time just done in this amazingly heightened way that only alex ross can do i mean he's the norman rockwell of comics Let's start with uh, Marvels, and we'll talk about uh, about these both in turn. Mar- Marvels, Kurt Busiek, 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 Busiek. All right, Busiek. That we'll call him Kurt. Kurt. It's, 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 I, I promise it's Busiek. Okay, the K stands for quality. Um, they, they, uh, Busiek and Ross made this, um, this, this story that is a beautiful, um, piece of art. I would say for one, but basically, Marvels, for those who don't know, is a Essentially, it's a retelling of some of the core stories from the early years of the Marvel Universe as seen through the eyes of a, a photographer. <laughs> or eye of the photographer. Or the eye later, uh, yes, mm-hmm. uh, of a photographer, through the lens, let's mm. say, of the photographer <laughs> who who is taking pictures of superhumans and in fact creates a book of his photography called Marvel's, who, whose cover is a mirror image of the cover that we have on the trade paperback of Marvel's. This is a four-issue um, miniseries from Marvel, and it's beautiful, and it, it really is a retelling of these major milestones from the um, initial emergence of the classic Marvel heroes before the Marvel Universe of the Human Torch and, and the Submariner. Uh, to the emergence of the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and Spider-Man, uh, the appearance of Galactus, all the way through to the death of Gwen Stacy. So it's very much about continuity and comic book history, but the idea of weaving all of these wild superhero stories together in art that is that is 
very realistic and uh, with a with the viewpoint always being that of the humans, the normal humans who are living in this in this uh, outsized world. And uh, I, I think I think we should we should start there. I, I anybody let's let the art is the thing that drew me to it. I caught my eye. I flipped through it and I bought it and I read it. And it is it is beautiful. I mean, I don't know the history of Alex Ross, although I, I can spot his work now because it is <laughs> Alex Ross. Once you've developed the eye for Ross, you're like, oh, wait, there he is. There he and, is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is it is spectacular. And and his takes on these Marvel, these classic Marvel heroes. I like the fact that all, I knew just enough about Marvel that I knew what these stories were. And I could recognize the people, um, but, you know, only in the broad strokes. And then he's telling us the details from this one character's perspective. One of the things I really love about the art is how insanely period specific he is, because he moves all the way from the late 30s to the late 1960s. And he's following the same group of characters, and you can see the clothes begin to shift over time. Yes. You, can see, you can see how hairdos shift. Um, the protagonist's wife, especially, they do a wonderful job moving her from uh, being a war bride to um, a, a polyester pantsuit-clad housewife of the 1970s. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. and it's plausible, and it's believable, and you can see the ghost of the woman she was in the 30s and 40s. So I love that art. Um one of the biggest Easter eggs, in my opinion, in his art is if you look at Gwen Stacy, it seems to be modeled after the actress Cheryl Lee. And um, there's oh, yeah, a lot. It's Laura Palmer. <laughs> yeah, it's Laura Palmer. Yeah. And there's a lot of Laura Palmer Im- imagery, especially when she's got the water falling on her face and she's smiling and she's off yeah. in her own world. And what I always enjoy is how seamlessly he 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 weaves in people who he, whose faces he's obviously inspired by and how he can age people up or age them down. And uh put them in a wide variety of different situations. It's just a beautiful book to look at. You get Edwin Newman in there at one point, yeah. which also makes me laugh. NBC News anchor Edwin Newman. I One of the things that I that I, I find fascinating about Marvels is, you know, they, they have this sliding time scale thing that happens in comic book continuity. Marvels' premise is when the comics were written is when things happened. Yeah. And so it is a locked in time. The They all emerged in the 60s. 40s the su- the Submariner and, well, um, and right, the, the original the, the Human timely, Torch. the timely yeah. comics right yeah. from the 30s and 40s right. and then the yeah. Captain America mm-hmm. story from World War II and then everything else from the Marvel universe was in that the you know Lee Kirby Ditko period in the 60s and then forward forward into the early 70s and that's the so it's all period piece which yeah. I really mm-hmm. like I like the idea that they're like this is when this story these stories this were is told. the history there's so no we're retconning gonna, yeah. exactly we're gonna tell it like like it is and in the in the back matter he. Uh, 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 Busick I- I- imagines that you know this is all happening simultaneously, and he said as he did the research, he realized he could weave this stuff together as if it was all happening simultaneously, which is kind of a a, a neat a neat trick. But um, anyway, not, not not to not to derail what you were saying, Lisa. But I just I, I think the period detail is fantastic, and and the fact that it's based on when these stories were told that these are 60s stories happening in the 60s not you know mapped into the 90s or something like they could have been I, I think that that's really important actually and it reflects it actually reflects the way Marvel Comics was back when these stories were being produced because the sliding time scale uh, came in later uh, but initially they were 
almost doing storytelling in real time. Peter Parker is a sophomore in high school when um, Amazing Fantasy comes out. And then a couple of years later, he's graduated from high school in real time, practically. And then somewhere along the way, uh, I think they decided that it's time to it's time to go with the Simpsons model. It's time to uh, say that every that Fantastic Four number one happened 10 or 15 years ago, regardless of when. Right. Um, but yeah, your point, your point is great, Jason, that this is, this is a love letter not only to the old Marvel stories, but to the way the old Marvel stories were told. Well, something important historically in, in the, the world of, of Kurt Busiek is that this was really his big breakout work as a writer. He had been an editor for Marvel writing uh, for Marvel Age, which is something that I, I loved picking up back issues of when I was a kid. Um, and in, in doing the process of the research for this project, I, I think foundationally a lot of what um, – he would bring to other projects like his runs on Avengers and various things that he saved from the clutches of the Marvel bankruptcy era when it was really circling the drain creatively and financially. Um, a lot of as, as big of a comics lover as he already was, I feel like Marvel's as a historical project is something that really, that really opened up the possibilities of what he would be able to do as a creative um, going beyond the editorial role at Marvel. It's easy to say uh, b- both of these things, but especially Marvel's is it, it's a love letter to continuity. You could, you could even mm-hmm. uh, deride it as being continuity porn. It is literally like, <laughs> what if we stitched everything together and said it all happened at once? But um, the great thing is, is you don't have to know all the continuity. It, it stands by itself though. So I'm not so sure about that. It's a great bonus though, because so many of the classic panels turn out to have been pictures he took. Yeah, oh, that's true. It, it is a beautiful conceit, right? Having the, the this be the chronicler of the Marvel universe and him having these amazing shots. There's also a great moment where he scoffs at Peter Parker, the stupid kid photographer, yeah. who's taking yeah. stupid, mean pictures of Spider-Man. He does that like a couple times. It's oh, pretty that's, funny. That's yeah, great. he rolls his eyes at young J. Jonah Jameson for saying, when I run the bugle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so um, Erica... Mm-hmm. Had you read this before, and do you have much background in this stuff, or are you somebody who is coming to a a celebration of continuity from a place of not really knowing the continuity? <laughs> yeah, that that last one. Yeah, that was me. okay. So, so tell me about that. I've read a very few, um, very few issues of things in the Marvel universe, uh, but I think it was must have been all stuff that was either not included here or after this, because I think I read some powers and oh yeah, Th- um, this and, is. And all of Alias, which I loved. I think but. this. I think this story essentially, with other than the last couple of pages, this story essentially ends when Gwen Stacy dies. That's like what nineteen seventy four, something like that, that. That that's about right. Yeah. If it's you're only off by maybe a year. If yeah. So. It, yeah, it's the it's the early to mid seventies. So it's a long time ago when this story kind of grinds to a halt. So nineteen seventy three. So what did you think? Well, my knowledge, you know, you can't live in the United States for most of your life without picking up and kind of knowing who some of these characters are. So I I had heard of the Human Torch, and I know that the Fantastic Four is a thing, but I have no idea who those four are or what they do. Um, of course, it's I know Spider-Man. It's fantastic, though. <laughs> well, um, which human torch are you talking about? Well, yes, there's, there's the original because there, human torch. There are two uh, human torches. Well, I know about this one because that's the one I read. <laughs> Previously, I had heard the words human and torch put together, <laughs> but that's about it. So you didn't notice that there were, in fact, two different human torches just in Marvels? This is true. Um, 
Me? Guess okay. not. <laughs> nope. This, the synthetic uh, human torch at the beginning is not the same as the one who's in the Fantastic Four, believe it or not. But. And I guess I didn't even really catch that there was a... Uh, okay, now it's coming back to me that there was a human torch in the Fantastic Four. So, so Erica, does did this story make sense at all? Did it was it evocative to you, or was it just like a I'm I'm really curious, or 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 did it make no sense and was kind of pointless? How how did you get out of it? It made great sense to me. I I totally understood. It. I I don't I know that I didn't catch every last little bit and piece. You guys got way more depth out of it than I did. But even just on the surface, it is it is a, a beautifully told story. And it's got that thing that I just love. Even if I don't know a property, I still sometimes just like dipping into the celebratory works of that property. So an anniversary special of something. Like when I was young and watching The Five Doctors, I had no idea about most of the stuff that had happened in the the 25 years or 20 years previous to that. But I still really loved the heck out of it because it was clear that there was a bunch of history that I didn't know about yet. And that tantalizes me and makes me more interested in a work. So I could tell that there were plenty of gaps in my knowledge, but it was just this great sort of nostalgic hug to Marvel in general. And that just, it made me feel warm and fuzzy. Like I was, I was coming into something really late, but it was something where everybody was celebrating and I just wanted to be in on the party. Well, I am coming from at this from almost the exact opposite perspective. When I was when I was really into Marvel comics, I was painfully into Marvel comics. <laughs> I was a footnote reader. I was a subscriber <laughs> to Marvel Saga. Marvel Saga, which was a series that was basically text pieces with isolated panels that tried to tell the history of every single Marvel comic ever produced and putting them all in story chronological order um so i should be prime i should be the prime audience for marvels because it basically is like marvel saga with a story (laughs) i have recovered somewhat um it's and i was not i i did not seek (laughs) i did not seek out the footnotes for either of these uh when i'm rereading them and i remembered how much i used to care about the continuity continuity details of uh, the Submariner's latest attack on New York and things like that. And um, I think that Marvel's probably relies on that continuity a little too much for my taste. Uh, I didn't get the same nostalgia feeling that Erica had. I was I was like, okay, I'm a little separated from this stuff now. Um, is this hitting me emotionally? And it didn't quite so much anymore. And I think it relies a little bit on that sort of love of the Marvel Universe more than it should. Interesting. So tell, tell me more about that. I mean, I it hit me just right where I, I think I feel like I knew just enough without knowing enough of the footnote details that it just kind of washed over me. And I felt that same kind of warm, fuzzy feeling as Erica where I'm like, oh, yes, these are like iconic, oh, Galactus and Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy and all of that without like marinating in the details yeah. of it. Maybe maybe it's just because I knew too much and I was embarrassed by it because <laughs> uh, I had forgotten that I knew who Betty Dean was. Betty Dean, the girlfriend of the Submariner back in the day. And then she shows up again. And I remember, and I, I'm I'm actually... I'm actually a little embarrassed that I know who she was, and I'm embarrassed that I'm being fan serviced. This podcast is over. <laughs> no, no, I, I, how dare you, Chip? No, I, 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 
isn't that being a comic book fan is I, I, I am amazed at, at the level of detail. I, I searched for the kingdom come annotations, which are out there. And I searched for Marvel's annotations cause they're actually footnotes in the back and there isn't Marvel's annotation. Don't Google the Marvel's annotation on the it's internet. It's fairly cause, shallow. Cause though, it's terrible. It's like worse speaking. than the one that's in the book. There's like, yeah, yeah, I guess there's some stuff from the old Marvel on well, this I don't page. Know who this is. It, it, yeah. They have no idea what's going on. So I come on Marvel fans up your game a little bit, but, yeah. um, but the footnotes in Marvel's are pretty good. But they're both – there is a layer to both of these things that is going to reward the gigantic nerd who remembers all that continuity and knows that, oh, that's a reference to that. And I, I think that's one of the questions about both of these is can they be enjoyed as works on their own? Erica seems to say yes. And and, and what Chip says, I almost am starting to wonder now if they can be enjoyed more if you don't know too much about them versus not enough. Which is maybe bizarre there, to me. Maybe, maybe there's a middle ground, actually. Maybe maybe it works for Erica because she's not been introduced to the minutiae. Maybe it works for somebody who's still marinating it in it. And then there's me sort of in this ambivalent middle stage. And I'm having trouble following the story of Phil Sheldon and all that stuff because I'm re-engaging with this continuity that used to be important to me and it's not. If I could throw in a, a weird uh, middle middle ground, I discovered Marvels uh, in 1994 as uh, as as a youth, as a youth. Uh, I don't youths. know how what yeah. is yeah you know one of these miscreant youths. These youths. <laughs> um, historically, in in the world of Marvel events and cool things and all that kind of stuff, it follows the trilogy of Infinity crossovers: Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity Infinity War, Infinity Crusade. And I was getting heavily into comics around then and confused by a bunch of that kind of stuff. Um, I liked some of it and other parts of it drove me totally crazy. And then when I got to Marvel's, there was stuff that rang a little bit familiar. There were bits and pieces of things. I, you know, I knew who the Submariner was. I didn't know that much about him. I knew that he existed and he uh, he had wings on his feet and a super powered Speedo. Um, mm-hmm. I knew about Spider-Man. I knew about uh, various characters that that show up. But then there were others like I, I eventually figured out and I was confused at first, too. I thought there was just the one human torch. But no, there were two human torches. And then I wanted to know about this first human torch I'd never heard about. And I wanted to know about uh, this character and that character that I'd never heard about. And it was also I mean, it, it, this itself was Alex Ross's big break into comics um, coming from a, a background of a, a mother who's a commercial artist and himself admiring the living daylights out of people like George Perez, who by then was very well known uh, for for work on on both uh, both. The, well, actually, at that time, I think it was mostly DC stuff. It would come later that that his big Marvel Avengers stuff would come. Um, Bernie Wrightson, he was a big fan of Bernie Wrightson too. He was he was influenced by both the commercial art Norman Rockwell side of things as well as the pop art comic book sort of thing. And in the way that this introduced a, a different feel for comics language than people were used to, where it was line art with splash color. And here there was, there was this greater depth to the imagery. There was this, you know, painterly quality to it that I just had never seen. Uh, I hadn't read Watchmen at this point, even though, yeah, it had been out for almost 10 years. Um, Marvel's for me redefined what I conceived as possible within the comic book form. Um, and I think this was, was this around the time that, um, that Scott McCloud's, Understanding Comics came out? I think it's a little earlier than that. 
That was no. Understand Comics was ninety three. So this is what a couple. Oh no, years, you're right. A couple yeah, years. Yeah, this was. That. Yeah, this was actually this was ninety four. Ninety four was Marvel. So this was just the year after, and. I remember I remember rather clearly around this same general hazy time in my past discovering Marvels and Kingdom Come and understanding comics all in the same breath and I was then then I I gained my full powers as the nerd in high school uh saying no there is a greater level at which comics can tell stories. Well that's like AP Comics is what you did there. You just said to the entire curricula for AP Comics. Advanced placement comics. So. <laughs> I, I read this stuff about how Mark Wade, uh, who wrote the other one, um, mm-hmm. studying comics uh, character backstories and writing himself file cards as a kid. And he had these mm-hmm. note card boxes full of stuff that he actually pulled from uh, with his new S.H.I.E.L.D. series that's out there. And I found myself doing uh, well a less dedicated version of that. Mark was the A student. I was the like B plus B minus student. <laughs> So I yeah for for me it 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 engendered this hunger for finding out who all these characters were and I didn't have the benefit of footnotes with um with either one of these so it was kind of limited to what I could find at the comic shop or what I could ask the guy with the ratty ponytail uh to show me that he wouldn't say well I don't know if you really want to read that mm-hmm. um and and that he'd actually go pull off the shelf for it. so for me what it I think what it did as somebody who had sort of stopped reading comics is it brought I felt like it, it it allowed me to let go of the details of the you know ins and outs of we of of monthly comics that had sort of frustrated me and take a step back and look at the bigger picture of these iconic stories these things that were just part of the if you read Marvel comics part of the kind of collective unconscious of Marvel that like everybody knew Galactus you know in the Fantastic Four etc cetera, etc cetera. everybody knew about Gwen Stacy and it all just sort of it happened in the past but it was all there and to 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 see it portrayed like this it actually made me realize that i had a great deal of affection for this stuff um and even though i had sort of uh, put it aside and said no 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 i'm not going to do that stuff anymore I, it made me rediscover a, a a a reservoir of love for comics that i didn't realize i still had and for the and for these stories and for the the big picture of it um and i think that's how it impacted me i, I wanted to ask all of you about, and this this is also something that that attaches to Kingdom Come. The idea behind Marvels is, at its core, a human's eye view of super superhumans. What was it like to be a person watching a world where where super people walk the earth? And um, on that level, I, I mean, I find it fascinating. There, that that's that shot of Galactus towering over the city. Mm-hmm. On that, on that, is that a? It's a. A single. I'm not sure if it's a single or a spread, but it is a spectacular piece of art. That short sleeves and all. Yeah, well, um, is just uh, amazing. And there's a, there's a spread with the kind of fire in the sky as Galactus arrives, and they don't understand what's going on. And there's yeah, it's a single page of just Galactus towering over everything. And you know, in my mind, that is what Marvels is about. It is about. We we all the other comics take the main characters as being the superhumans. Marvels is about the humans looking at the superhumans and and our in our main character um, loving them and following them and eventually kind of as some of us do when we read comics for a long time, getting tired of them and feeling sort of disaffected, like they've seen this story before. I, I you know I, I 
I, I'm fascinated by it. Monty, do you have you you've been you've been kind of quiet. Do you have any thoughts about uh, the human's eye view of Marvels? Um, that's what I think is the coolest part of Marvels is that it portrays tries to portray what it's like to live in a world where a you're having to rebuild the city all the time because as soon as one gigantic threat from outer space is pushed away, another one shows up, and I like. My favorite part in it is the moment when the narrator, whose name I can't pull right now. Phil? Is mm-hmm. that it? Yeah. Uh, of, uh, Phil, Phil Sheldon. Yeah. Sheldon. Phil Sheldon. Yes. When Phil Sheldon is explaining why his Marvel's book should be published, which is, see how excited everybody here in New York is to see the human torch in the distance? Imagine the people in Peoria that <laughs> never mm-hmm. see this at all. Right. And just trying to picture a world where you're seeing the superheroes all the time, I think that's really interesting. And it's something Kurt Musiak went on to do, I think, even more interestingly and in more detail with Astro City. There's a there's a page where in the background there there I think it might even be when he's talking to the editor who's sort of turning him down for the book. It, but the, definitely there are there are a few of these scenes where out the window there are just flying people passing by. Yeah. Like on their way somewhere or to a fight or fighting or whatever. But it 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 it's somewhat subtly sends the message that this is a world where, you know, you look out your window and there's people flying by because there are super people everywhere. Yeah. And I'd just like to say that although I think Alex Ross's art is beautiful and I can't imagine how long this thing took to create with yeah. every panel being an oil painting, sometimes I feel like his art is a little static. Like it doesn't mm. really look like people are moving. But here it works because so much of it is a photographer's view. Right. That it's supposed to be a still shot of giant man posing up there. Right. Since he uses so much photographic reference, which if you get the trade paperback, you can see the examples of it. It does feel sometimes like you're watching, you know, you're looking at a photograph. Yeah. And 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 if you talk about Scott McCloud, I mean, there's the the idea of the impression of movement between panels. And in this, I think you're right. It works because this is a a story about a still photographer. And so you can sort of the conceit is, you know, we're seeing still moments from dynamic events. And there's also this heightened, this sort of heightened realism more so than in Kingdom Come, um, if you look at the uh, superhero costumes in Marvels, you see all the wrinkles. Oh, yeah, see, yeah. Spider-Man. Sp- Spider-Man, mm-hmm. Spider-Man looks almost amateurish, which makes kind of sense. It's a teenager who sewed his own costume and things like that. Um, there is something about this art that is not just static, but it is almost hyper-representational. Yeah. And uh, I, sometimes I want that, and sometimes I want, you know, Bruce Tim or Mike Parabek's Batman Adventures, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, where you, where you, the the simplicity, the other end of the Scott McCloud spectrum. But for this, this is great. Yeah, I feel like his art is beautiful, not necessarily dynamic, but in this context, it's perfect. I do feel in Kingdom Come, it could stand to be a little more dynamic. It still looks like they're posing. I think here for me, it, it helped uh, it helped ratchet up the nostalgia factor because in a way I felt like I was looking through a photo album of yeah. the history of the life of Marvel. It really is a genius conceit to have it through the <laughs> eyes of a photographer because it so perfectly fits the uh, the style of the art and the composition of the frames. It's, it's just a lovely way to reinforce that all the way through. 
it also does a great job of covering the fact that this is his first sequential art work uh, of you know of this scale or anything anything remotely this um uh, epic in scope um you know beyond a, a little bit of work that he had done um and i i you know call me controversial the art's beautiful. You're controversial. Damn you, voice uh, well, Thank you. Thank you. I will accept uh, my plaudits. Um, <laughs> it's, it's iconic. And the thing that, that a number of us are pointing to is that it's not particularly dynamic. There are some really amazing shots within this that are memorable. But looking back on it, and I've, I've revisited it a couple of times over the years, there, there are very few bits that really are just indelible in my mind. There are more of those, I would say, with Kingdom Come. And as time goes on, um, there's still the painterly uh, single snapshot kind of feel to the way that his visual storytelling works. Uh, but, it, you know, it does evolve and get a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more uh, to where you you feel the illusion of the sequential art moving you forward. Um, much more pronounced in stuff like Earth X a number of years later. Um, but if if anything, I have I have friends who say, oh man, Alex Ross, I just wish Alex Ross would do everything. I don't. I think mm-hmm. there's a very specific type of storytelling that his art is very beautifully attuned to. Uh, like this, like these massively oversized uh, single prestige edition things that DC did. They did one for Superman, they did one for Batman, they did one for Shazam that is some of the best Shazam art that's ever been done. Uh, they did a really great wonder woman one too. I think there might've been one or two others. Um, this I think is, is a great encapsulation of if, if this type of storytelling is good for you, then the things that Alex Ross art is on is the sort of thing that you can take. But I, I don't think any of us can, can really necessarily go, Oh man, I remember entire pages of this art the way that we do something like Dave Gibbons' art from Watchmen. Um, well, uh, I can, but only only a pan- only because there's panels. That's an entire page that I happen to like that panel. Right. Like he does a good splash panel. I don't know. I've read a lot of. I've read Kingdom Come a few times, and so there's a few panels I remember pretty explicitly, just because the imagery struck me one way or another. Yeah. Well, I'm saying I'm Marvel specifically. Um, well, not not as much as Kingdom Come. The giant man shot, I think. But again, that's because it's a giant panel. Uh, Gwen Stacy holding her face up, yeah, in the uh, rain. to the in the rain with her yeah. hands up around her. Uh, it's that's and just the quality of light yeah. in that panel is is practically translucent. And every time I see it, I'm just struck at how he managed to capture the experience of a sun shower. Yeah, the 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 ones that he sells Gicle prints for a giant pile of money at San Diego of like those though there there are much fewer of those in Marvels than there are in Kingdom Come. See, I mm. feel like I feel like with Marvels every panel is essentially a cover. Um and Kingdom Come I feel like he dialed it back a little bit and it's a little more it feels a little more sequential, but I don't mind that. I actually think maybe I prefer it, but I think Marvels is the perfect place for that, right? The whole idea of Marvels is everything is hap- that is happening that we're showing you is iconic. This is the photo album. That's exactly yep. right of that. Um I wanted to mention by the way that there's a there's that scene where Phil is in the Daily Bugle office and Spider-Man climbs up the outside of the building. 
And that's that's the moment where you see him close up and he's got the kind of wrinkly outfit. And I remember that was the first time after years of reading Spider-Man from when I was a little kid that I thought, wow, Spider-Man's costume is kind of weird because like this is a, a realistic depiction of it and it's problematic. And I remember thinking of this very panel when I went and saw the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man in 2002 and, and, and noticed how they tried to deal with how you depicted actual human being wearing the Spider-Man costume because it's kind of hard and it, there's kind of not a good... I mean, that's why, like, the X-Men was like, we'll put them in leather jackets. Forget about the costumes. <laughs> um, and and um, it, it really worked for me in that, in, in which is kind of fascinating because it's trying to apply some real-world uh, textures and physics to these things that were so totally not that. And that's why I think Marvel's work so well as a, a comic book entirely composed of, of covers. One of, one of the interesting mood things that he did, it was the first time that I remember seeing the X-Men and finding them kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, oh, they yeah, were more, depicted as monsters almost. Yeah, yes. I mean, the, this, yes. this glowing red devil hue in the first appearance of the X-Men in Marvel. Yeah, Cyclops where, has never looked creepier than in Marvel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> valuable because I've always thought that's one of the weakest parts of the X-Men, that they're in a world with the Fantastic Four and the Submariner and all these other superheroes and Spider-Man, but mutants are feared. Yeah. Why yeah. do you care if a guy's a mutant or got it from cosmic rays or gamma radiation? Yeah, it, it for us the comic reader, it makes the the anti mutant uh, hysteria um, and the writing and all that stuff seem absolutely nonsensical. And I think that's I think that's part of the point of yes. the story. The characters look exactly the same <laughs> unless you get the, un, until they're bathed in the light and all that other Tell stuff. What's your backstory? Tell you did you were you bitten by something? Was there a ray of some sort? Yeah. Or did, were you just born this way? If you're born this way, we hate you. If it was yeah. a ray, you're fine. It's fine. Well, and, and I think they, the Marvels did a pretty good job of of, under, of explaining why people are feeling that way with their gut reaction. Because if it's a genetic change, those people are apparently replaced. the ones. We're being yeah, they're going to be taking over the world. Yeah. Whereas if it's just a good old you know human Oops. being that got some <laughs> some superpowers, they're going to protect other human beings because right. they're still one of us. And an amazingly gutsy thing that Busiek does in this story is he has Phil Sheldon pick up a brick and hit Iceman in the head with it. Oh, I saw. He is he is part of the he is part yeah. of the rioters. He I, is I think that scene happens in X-Men like 1 or 2. I might be imagining that, but I think he's done like a Flashman where he's inserted his character into a pre-existing yeah. scene. I'm pretty sure yeah, that that is the case. Uh, the cool. memory is fuzzy, but that sounds right. And he's sh- he and he feels shame for it. Sheldon is no saint in this no. in this story. Not like not like Norman McKay. Sheldon is <laughs> literally every man. He's got his good parts and his bigotries. Sheldon has to has to make peace with the fact that uh, he was a bigot out of fear at some point. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy um, a lot the fact that they find the the mutant girl and they take her in, and then the fact that she then runs off. Oh, that was heartbreaking. And there's no and there's no re- resolution to that. She runs off. Yeah, she's not a famous character or no. anything, so you don't know what happened. It's actually a callback to an X-Men story from the 1960s, I believe. Oh. And um, unfortunately, I can't remember if the story ends with the child killed by a mob and the X-Men get to her too late or if they rescue her in the nick of time. But that child that was in the basement is actually 
meant to be a famous mutant type thing and and obviously an analog for the civil rights movement at the same time too where the question is is what kind of people persecute a child just because they look different maggie the mutant has a has a uh has a page mm-hmm. on uh, has a wiki uh, a marvel wikipedia Mar- marvel wiki page oh there uh, we go so apparently they we did we did uh she she did have other adventures after she left Phil Sheldon's uh, the, basement. The Adventures yeah. of Maggie the Mutant. Maggie the Mutant. Yeah, coming mm-hmm. coming after Secret Wars twenty fifteen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the the one thing that I read into this story, and I don't know how intentional it was, but I remember a lot of commentary over the years about the the day that Gwen Stacy died being a real turning point for Marvel and Marvel publishing. And I see – I read this story as a bit of a criticism of where uh, comic book storytelling has gone since the time of the Marvels. Um, Gwen Stacy dies. That breaks Phil Sheldon and he's through. He's through with Marvels and through that. And then this wonderful last page where he, uh, where he encounters a nice, normal, ordinary boy, Danny Ketch, the second <laughs> yes. ghost writer, who is one of the most – aggressively 90s aggressively effed up uh commercial extreme and and and, and, you know take our pictures with young mr catch here a nice normal ordinary boy that's actually pretty darn cutting yeah no that's a nice boy i had to look it up i was like i bet that kid ended up being something horrible and i looked it up i'm like oh okay yep okay right I'm a big fan of the barrage of meaningless cameos. Yes. My favorite two are Bill Lumpkin, who's later on Willie Lumpkin, the mailman mailman for the Fantastic Fantastic Four. Four. He's he's dating (laughs) Phil's girl when Phil has like reluctance to marry in a world with Marvels. Did she like the way he waggled his ears? I wonder. Yeah. Stupid Willie Lumpkin. I, I just love that they went to the trouble of calling that guy out. And also, for some reason, Popeye is in this. Really? Yes, he's in uh, issue one. One of the characters that is just being interviewed is clearly Popeye. He's got uh. a squinky <laughs> eye and a corncob pipe. <laughs> nice. There are there are a couple of follow up um, pieces that that I I I love mentioning this kind of stuff. Uh, partly, especially in this case, because uh, one of them is is kind of a. Uh, um, well, it's a Warren Ellis book, uh, and I love everything Warren Ellis does and everything he destroys. And <laughs> a, a few years later, I, I, actually, it might have just been the next year, um, Warren Ellis did a book called Ruins. It was a two-issue uh, thing that was basically a, a parody of Marvel's. Phil Sheldon's back once again. And uh, but everything is going terribly wrong. Like it, the the first issue has Captain America, and Iron Man, Spider Man, and the Hulk, and like all the heroes laying all akimbo on the ground, um, you know, beaten to crap. Um, but it, it it's basically Marvels, but totally dystopian. Um, and and I love it. It's it's kind of insane, and I, I feel like nobody remembers that it exists. Oh, the Amazon reviews are merciless. Oh, it's uh, because people love Marvel so much, um, it ruins, uh, just uh, ruins it uh, for, for some people. <laughs> um, now, they did they did a proper, quote-unquote, sequel featuring the art of um, a, a, a painter-style artist that I'm a big fan of um, from books that he worked on that I'm, I'm sure that if I looked back on them now, there probably was not much substance in there at all. Um, but Jay Anacleto did Marvel's Eye of the Camera, 
um, again, written by Kurt Busiek. Uh, and again, Phil Sheldon is back with a vengeance. <laughs> um, and uh, I so- don't care about Phil Sheldon. I mean, <laughs> well, I don't. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, look, I think it's great that there's an everyman who frames the story because it does but, come. It, but you it, get to it, find it out what happened question- to Maggie. <laughs> I care more about Phil Sheldon than I do about what's-his-name who's not even a character in Kingdom Come. Uh Mm -hmm. I want to take a moment for an Elseworlds tale. Imagine a world, a dark world full of spam, viruses, bounced email. This is the world of Kingdom Come. Uh, And also our world. Let's also imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. This is the dream of Phil Sheldon in Marvels, maybe. Uh, but if he is dreaming that, he's dreaming about MailRoute, who is sponsoring this episode of The Incomparable. MailRoute stops that evil stuff, the spam viruses and bounced email, from reaching your inbox, indeed, from reaching your mail server at all. MailRoute lives in the cloud. You sign up, change your MX records for your domain to point at MailRoute, and then all the inbound mail for your domain comes to MailRoute servers. MailRoute servers process it, make sure that it's not spam or viruses or bounced email, pulls all that stuff out, and then delivers only the legitimate email that you want and need to receive to your mail server and then into your inbox. Traffic and load on your mail server goes down. The junk never reaches you. You don't have to maintain any hardware or software. It all happens up in the cloud at MailRoute's servers. It's very easy to set up, super reliable. It's trusted by large organizations like universities and corporations. I find, as a regular old desktop user, I find the interface to be super easy. Um, I, I, I really enjoy using it. I like checking on what spam I didn't get. That's actually kind of a blast. And if you're an email administrator or an IT professional, they built all the tools with your in mind. They've got an API for easy account management. There's support for LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. You can start a risk-free trial without any credit card necessary. It's simple and effective. There's no reason not to try it. Every listener to The Incomparable can receive 10% off of MailRoute for the lifetime of the account. Go to MailRoute.net slash Snell right now to sign up. And thank you so much to MailRoute for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, let's uh, let's move on and talk about Kingdom Come. I am I I will put it out there. I am somebody who is vaguely aware of DC mythology and read some DC comics, but I was always much more of a Marvel guy. And so, um, coming up on Kingdom Come as I did, I thought, well, this is this looks cool, you know, thumbing through it at Barnes and Noble or whatever, and I bought it and. I realized as I read it that there were so many layers of reference to characters that I knew nothing about, but I knew the basics enough, sort of like what Erica was saying about about mm-hmm. Marvels. I knew enough about Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and the Green Lantern and the Flash and things like that and Captain Marvel that I could that I could get it. Um, what I really loved about it, and this is this. Kingdom Come has much more of a story. Kingdom Come is a story of a future. Uh, it's it's the I think it's the early twenty first century. Woo! Um, <laughs> where superheroes have been the, the old school superheroes have been gone for a while, and there are new school superheroes like from the nineties who have emerged, and they're awful. We know that those heroes from the nineties are terrible. And they're they're all got tattoos on their faces. And tattoos, and yeah, they're, they're pierced everywhere too. They're That's awful, just, and, yeah. and uh, so the world has kind of gone to hell. And likewise, we are seeing that you know it's not a great place for regular humans. It's really more the superhumans are just kind of flying around fighting each other for fun. Uh, so there's that that whole kind of meta level, and then and then Wonder 
Woman goes and has a talk with Superman and says, you know, this is crap. We need to deal with it. Bad things have happened. They blew up a, you know, nuclear, you know, they, they split Captain Adam in two and he, he made a nuclear explosion and pointed and poisoned the Midwest of the U.S. And it's very bad and you need to do something about it. And, and so there's th- this is a this is a book with a story. But what is fascinating about it is, as DC calls it, Elseworlds. It's like not in continuity. It's a it's a future time. And and these characters are uh, these iconic characters are allowed to be iconic and uh and and there are consequences and and you can tell a broad story with it and this is a broad this is like a uh we'll we'll get to that there's a lot of story here there's a lot of story here that's just summarized because there's too much story to actually tell um but you know and there's from page one there is a whole biblical overlay of the you know the end times and revelation kingdom come is the name of the thing and it, you know a clash with the superhumans and the the super humans and the super villains <laughs> essentially and then the humans who are also not that great uh it, it, it's a fascinating piece of work it, the art is beautiful by alex ross um although it does feel different and and more um rough than the lavish stuff that's in marvels um yeah i felt like if that was the uh if if marvels was the nostalgic family family album of pictures then this was sort of like a bunch of news cuttings slapped together or newsreels or something Mm. i I, what i find interesting about kingdom come is it's basically a religion you mentioned there's the the framing device is that you have a minister who's asked to run around the universe with the specter yes. and help the specter sit in judgment. But what this really is, is a thinly, a, a thumbnail version of the story might well be Jesus, a.k.a. The Superman. The second coming of Superman. Yeah, no, because <laughs> literally like one of the first times you see Jesus, there's, there's a panel where, where Superman's got long hair and he's yeah. holding a crossbeam on his shoulders and the crucifixion yeah. imagery oh, oh, yeah. could not be more blatant yeah. if you had like a group of hippies singing, prepare ye the way of the Lord right underneath <laughs> him. The gist of the, the, the gist of the story is, is will, will Jesus slash Superman um, step up and do what is necessary with the the powers he's been given. And then at the very end, there's kind of a bait and switch when, oh, surprise, surprise, Captain Marvel is your sacrificial lamb all along. And Superman is, is and Superman, like there's a heavy emphasis on the man portion of Superman by the end of the, by the end of Kingdom Come. And the intimation there is that he's finally come to terms with the man part of Superman. And that's what's going to make him a more effective super, uh, right. super being by the end of it. Whereas Diana is pretty much just unrepentantly, I'm worshipped from beginning to end of the story. No, there's not a whole lot of character development for anyone other than anyone other than Superman. This is basically the whole book is about that the battle for Superman's soul, where he had effectively dropped out of public life ten years earlier when he was horrified by people going, "Yeah, it's okay to kill supervillains." And he, it, ah! I mean, Lo- <laughs> Lois Lane is killed by the Joker. Yeah, but and then he, then Magog. And, and, yeah, Magog. Uh, Magog kills the Joker, and Superman's yeah. like, "That's not how it's supposed to work." And he drops out of public life when the public is like, "Why can't we kill supervillains already?" It's the nineties. It's yeah. totally extreme. Yeah, yeah. Th- this book, this book feels like a reaction to the com- to the comics of the nineteen nineties, and it's 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 the struggle for the soul of Superman can be seen as, as metaphorical that way. I just find the religious imagery through this whole thing incredibly striking because it suggests that there's different ways to worship these 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 people, and then the question is, how do the gods respond to the worship that is their due? And they the guy named Magog, like that's yeah. out of yeah. the Bible. <laughs> He's yeah. going to be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> All of this, whether the gods are actually do it or whether they should be gods in the first place. I mean, it is 
um, this this is angry God stuff. This is not warm and fuzzy um, prayers for healing kinds of stuff. The, yeah. the, they don't become worthy of normal humans' trust until the end of Kingdom Come when they when they take their masks off and stop wearing the uniforms. You could argue that the story too is that the old gods, the the you know the the superheroes that we know. Um, left left the world right to to their own to its own devices, and now we're having that debate of wow things got really bad when we left. Do yeah. we need to do we reengage here? Do we reenter? And they do, and they say we're taking over, yeah. and that does not go well, right? Like all the all the villains are upset, the UN is upset, and even the humans who have been heroes are upset, and that's a fascinating uh, split. The split between Batman. Bruce Wayne has got uh, Batman is the hero of this book. More yeah, or less. he really well, is. I, I think he's, Wonder but he's, Woman, but, but he's human, and and he's got sort of the human heroes with him, and then there are the godlike heroes, and they are they are on opposite sides ish for a long time, which is fascinating. Too. Yeah, I, I do also enjoy how Aquaman is all. You know what? This is like a land dweller problem. I got I crap really to do. I got seventy percent of the of the <laughs> Earth's surface to deal with. So go away. He's like, and you, you know you can't build, build a jail here. here. <laughs> I think it's interesting that actually Batman doesn't take as big a role as I kept expecting him to. Like, a lot of big DC stories boil down to Superman arguing with Batman. (laughs) Superman versus Batman, Dawn of Justice. But in this one, it's really more Superman arguing with Wonder Woman. Uh Uh-huh. And then Batman Mm -hmm. happening to come along at the end and solve everything. The deus ex Batna, yeah. Wonder Woman is so interesting this version of that character is so interesting in this. She doesn't let him know that she's essentially been kicked out of mm-hmm. her Femascara. land, yeah, um, and stripped of all of her, you know, royalty and things like that. And then, it, you know, she it comes up later, and uh, she's got the god, kind of godlike attitude, and she is also, um more like those other heroes in that she's like we got to do whatever we can to win this whereas superman is very much like uh, almost hamlet like in his indecisions about well i mean you know we i want it to be good but you know i don't want to do anything bad to make it good and she's like let's just kill those guys and it's fascinating that the push and pull between those two characters too as they're also obviously attracted to each other yeah yeah it's it, it's uh, more about the at at first, they perceive the problem. Superman and Wonder Woman perceive the problem as it's this new generation of kids who don't know morality. You know, there is there is right and there is wrong, and it's easy to tell the difference. Um, and then we discover throughout the story that the problem is not these kids. It, the problem is your approach to the solution. It is Superman and Wonder Woman are taking a might takes right. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, approach to this thing and you get into even bigger brawls than the ones that they thought that they were solving if i can uh, if i can interject with uh, with something that i feel like i should preface uh, preface with the words fukuisan um <laughs> <laughs> jason <laughs> um a, a little bit of, of origin story of kingdom come itself um because I, I think it's directly relevant to this uh you know the the uh the 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 old gods making way for the new gods and realizing the new gods are not so great and going well we should come back in and clean this stuff up um this story was was originally pitched uh as an outline by alex ross um, while he was working on Marvels. He wanted to do something like this with DC, but he didn't know DC continuity as well. Um, he pitched it to, let's see, 
who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Uh, James Robinson, uh, famous for, for his legendary run on Starman along with a bunch of other stuff. And he, he pitched this thing that was similar in scope and uh, theoretical, you know, dramatic implications, uh, to something like Watchmen or an Alan Moore project that got pitched years before called Twilight of the Superheroes that never turned into anything, but that has been, its its corpse has been well plundered by especially Kingdom Come, uh, from which it took some very, very direct um, uh, uh, inspiration, but loads of other things that, that would follow in DC history, where the general concept was, was this, you know, what, what happens, uh, you know, when when some big catastrophic thing like this is going to happen. Um, and it was it was something that uh, that just kind of dissolved in terms of, of Moore's take on it. But uh, but bits of it, especially especially the notion of dealing with the conflict between the older and younger generations of superheroes um, and how to deal with supervillains and putting some some this is it. This is the last one. This is the big epic final Ragnarok level event where everything goes to hell. Um, and they eventually ended up pairing him with Mark Wade because Mark Wade, as, as I mentioned earlier, had these note card boxes full of, uh, full of files on all of these comic book characters as a kid and knows all of this stuff encyclopedically. Um, and, if you look at this and then you look at Earth X, which Ross did with Marvel a few years later uh, with, with Jim Kruger, you see the difference when he's paired with somebody like Mark Wade and when he's given more free reign to just kind of go nuts. Um, and that one kind of falls falls apart at the ends. But what I like so much about this is, yes, there's loads of continuity porn all over it. Um but it, it ties together really nicely, even if, like me, still years later, you're realizing, oh, Scott Free is a guy called Mr. Miracle and he's a thing and he's a character. OK, what's he all about? Um, it it you know, there you go. See, uh, clever, clever comic book names. Um, but it's it, the, the 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 core conceit of this potentially being the big final story for all of these characters is something that when when I discovered it, where I just kind of grabbed DC stuff here and there. It was, uh, it was phenomenal. I, I didn't know anything about, uh, then Captain Marvel now called Shazam. I'd never seen him. I didn't know that he existed and he played a, a major role in this thing. And then I decided, well, maybe I should, I should look into who this character is. Yeah, he traveled in a Winnebago in the seventies. Moises, you may have missed that, but, uh, anybody <laughs> who watched kids TV in the, in the seventies <laughs> remembered he traveled with his friend mentor in a Winnebago. Um, it is uh, Mark Wade certainly is uh, extremely interested in thinking about the idea of Superman and what it, what life Mar Marvel Comics doesn't have Superman. They don't have a really a Superman. I mean, they they, they have some characters who are kind of like that now, but not not one of their their lead characters is not the all powerful kind of being that Superman can be. And Mark Wade is definitely fascinated by him. And you see it in Kingdom Come. This is essentially, like Lisa said, the story of what Superman going to do and what decision. I mean, essentially, he's making this decision. It's like, do we all die? Or do we live and the world is ruined? And there's a third option, which is that Captain Marvel 
blows up the thing and many of them die, but not all of them. And that's that's sort of how it gets resolved in the end. Um, but <laughs> Everybody you know, loses. That's how it gets yeah, resolved. Well, I mean, so Mark, we wrote Irredeemable, which I recommend mm-hmm. to people. I think it's a really interesting comic and it, it lasted for 37 issues and it tells a whole story. But Irredeemable is essentially uh, Mark Wade saying, what if Superman went bad one day? And it's it's great, but it is very clear that this is a, a a a subject that is near and dear to Mark Wade's heart, and he likes to he likes to talk about it. One of the great attractions of Kingdom Come is that because it's set outside of continuity, it can tell a story and it can make changes in these characters, and they can have development and age. And this is sort of old grumpy Batman instead of you know younger grumpy Batman that we usually see, and it's uh, that's all that's all kind of fascinating. Well, and of course, seven years later, Wade got a chance in continuity to redefine Superman with the well until they wiped away all of continuity the uh the really great canonical modern retelling of the superman myth with uh with birthright birthright um, yeah which they lifted from like crazy for that man of steel movie that uh that that being on an episode of the incomparable taught me i really did hate i remembered you know every I'd, now uh, and then i get a tweet from somebody who said i finally saw man of steel wow you guys are right it's terrible i'm like why did you even why did you do that but no. thank you for the reinforcement years later i was so scarred by it that that intervention had to take place for me to realize my true feelings about it that i was trying to push well, to the back know, one of push the, away one of the inciting moments in in Marvel's Civil War comic event is a group of superheroes ha- making a mistake that leads to a large loss of um, innocent life. One might say that Mark uh, uh, Mark Millar might have actually might have read this. It, I don't it, know. It, it, it brings mm. that to mind when I read Kingdom Come this time. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's kind of how the whole Civil War thing starts. Yeah, that's that's yeah. The, the, when I read Civil War for the first time. I'm like, wait a minute, this yeah. seems really familiar. It's interesting, but you know, the idea that superheroes, uh, when left to their own devices, might make some super mistakes and kill a bunch of innocent people is it's an interesting thing to explore i wanted to mention um the ending which my understanding is is not in the original comics and only in the collection which Mm -hmm. is the one year later you mean the one year later epilogue epilogue where they're in planet krypton the planet hollywood of superheroes god i love that (laughs) i love i love the premise of that restaurant and the menu cracks me up too (laughs) today's special is the power girl chicken sandwich um, yeah. yeah, it's what breast. cut is that? Breast. Breast. Um, <laughs> if I could interject for just a second, um, I, I read this uh, because I couldn't find my uh, my. I have the original Prestige comics, and but I couldn't find them in time, so I got this off of Comicsology, and included with issue four is the one year later thing. So I'm not sure. It, I think it may have been part of the original. Mm. I don't think. I don't think it I, is. I think it was included in reprints and, and the digital versions that have existed ah. go off of the reprints. It's got my favorite thing in it, which is the spot on drink choices for Superman, Batman <laughs> yes. and Wonder Woman. Wa- water, <laughs> milk and coffee. It's the right. game keep it mug coming. for the coffee, coffee keep it coming. I just love it. Oh. So, so I got to say the epilogue is my favorite thing in the whole comic. I love yeah. it. I love everything about it. I love the fact that there's these that there are superheroes eating at the superhero themed restaurant because Wonder Woman really just wants to see how crazy this place would be. And mm-hmm. they got people dressed in all the costumes of all the superheroes and the, and the things on the menu are hilarious and Batman just wants a steak well done and and he doesn't care what the theme is. He just wants a steak well done and it comes medium and Superman makes it well done with his heat yes! vision. <laughs> it is He like moves his dad glasses and you just see his eyes glare for a moment and it's delightful. 
I love it so much. I mean, like more than the, I mean, the story is, is interesting and, you know, operatic and has religious metaphors forever and all of that. And yet, you know what? I kind of really like the idea of Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman who are now Superman and Wonder Woman are having a baby and they ask Batman to be the, to be the godfather. I kind of, that 12 pages or whatever it is, is kind of my favorite thing. Just like them having lunch is yeah. my favorite oh. thing in the book, which is crazy. The one it little touch on. that I loved the most was Superman drinking out of a Shazam glass. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and oh, the, yeah. the, the like coffee mug is the a Green Lantern lantern uh, yeah. killed me. Too. My only complaint is that I feel that Batman has a high tolerance for things with stupid names. <laughs> so he should not get upset at the various yeah. uh, stakes. I'm, I'm sorry. Are you going to go back to your bat computer and complain that we have, call our stakes something silly? I really like the Mitzelplik mozzarella sticks. <laughs> you know, maybe Batman has gotten a little crusty in his old age. Yeah, sure. and, you know, he's, he's okay with the stuff that he named when he was a, a young, crazy dude. The, but The man has an exoskeleton anymore. now. He's cranky, okay? Mm-hmm. The process of turning into Sam Neill has made him bitter. <laughs> yep. I mean the the stuff the the stuff that's easy to pick up on whether you're a continuity porn you know freak or not. Um, that sounds the, so dirty. Oh my I, god. <laughs> well, I, see, I the the thing the thing that rereading this, there was loads of stuff that I picked up on that I definitely didn't get in 1996, and I'm I'm curious. I, my assumption is compared to Marvel's, there's a lot more stuff that. That may just come off like the invented children that nobody had ever seen before uh, to somebody like Erica. Um, I, I, I was was this uh, brain melting? You know, I, I again, I knew enough about the biggies here that you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, like that was no problem for me. I honestly, reading this, got the impression that an awful lot, if not all of the next generation of superheroes were made up for this. So I don't know if they were trying to make it look like that, but that was that was very much the way that it came off to me. None of them seemed particularly consequential. And I just didn't get that sort of same, like, you know, in Marvels, when you'd see somebody in the background, I... I it just felt like this is somebody who is a part of the tapestry of this era. And I didn't feel that way with Kingdom Come. I mean, it's a very different kind of story. But I I, I knew enough about the, the people who are keeping the action moving to be able to buy into the story and sort of get behind the characters. And the anybody who I wouldn't have known very well w- wasn't doing a whole lot in the story. So they were just kind of like background characters and and they didn't it didn't bother me very much to have them there although i think the fact that there were so many characters that were named like that in addition did sort of make it a little bit just overwhelming with the numbers because there was a lot of them so i i checked out emotionally just a little bit because i i didn't feel like i I knew enough about the the bad guys. There wasn't anything for me except for Lex Luthor to to hang my emotional hat on. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, Alex Ross at the time uh, did this insanely detailed Bible, um, you know, about who all of these characters are. Um, you know, which one of these characters is the uh, daughter of Dick Grayson and Starfire and things like that. And much of this never shows up in the actual book, Kingdom Come, in the actual story. But I I did think when I was reading this, I just kept my eyes on Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. Yeah. And the hordes of characters in the background 
um, that had all of these relations to the original DC characters and all that stuff. It was a strange kind of continuity porn that I was able to completely ignore because it was like speculative com- continuity porn. It wasn't talking about the history of the um, right. DC universe so much as where it could go next. And I think Erica actually... I mean, checking out is actually probably the right way to approach all these characters. They're just cannon fodder. I agree. Close your eyes and think of England. It struck me as cheesy, cheesy cameos. And cheesy cameos have a tendency to annoy me. So I was just like, okay, whatever. Can I, can I talk about the difference in reading these in the 1990s versus yes, now? Yes, go ahead. And, cause, and I noticed this with Marvels, too, is the first time I saw Tony Stark in Marvels, I had – and this was – the first time I read Marvels and saw Tony Stark – it was 100%. It made perfect sense. And um, again, I was like, oh, of course, Tony Stark always looks like that. That's the daring dude that I remember. And then when I went back and reread Marvels in preparation for this podcast, there was a moment where there's kind of a perceptual shift where I'm like, wait, the Black Widow doesn't look like that because I have a little bit of Scarlett Johansson uh-huh. in the back of my head now. And it was the same yeah. thing where – and I, I think Ultimate's – sort of drop kick me down this path because you know they, they were the ones who started it by 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 using samuel L. jackson as as the ultimate nick fury but when i read marvels this time out it was a little it was a little strange to to see these characters and think oh no no these are these these don't map to the the composites i have yeah. in my head now because the composites are informed by stuff from the audience and when i went back and reread kingdom comfort for, for the umpteenth time I actually didn't have that problem, and I think one of the reasons I didn't have that problem is because the characters who are being recycled through the movies now are being recycled in one generation. But like when you have Batman who is balding and in the and in the bad exoskeleton, yeah. and like the Green Arrow has lost all of his hair and put on some weight, and it's pretty obvious that him and the Black Canary have retired to Boca, and 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 all of and you know even Superman is great at the temples and looking a little bit beefy. There wasn't that disconnect with weight. No, this is not how they look in my head now. The the same way I, yes. I had with Marvels. There's there's because because. And and I love the CW shows as much as the next person, but like, there's no way I'm confusing any of the the characters there for for what I see in Kingdom Come. There's just a, there was a sharper delineation, whereas with Marvels, there's a little bit of bleeding around the edges, and I, I thought that was kind of an interesting interesting take. Did you notice that Tony Stark looks like Timothy Dalton? Yes, with a mustache. Yes. Yeah, Rocketeer was yeah. around that time. I think it might have helped that Marvels is allegedly portraying the way things were, so it's supposed to match your memory. But Kingdom Come is doing a future version. And even, like, let's say you love Christopher Reeve or Brandon Routh or somebody. Well, maybe they look like that when they get old. Mm. You don't know yet. Yeah. Probably yeah. not. The aged Batman is just beautiful. The the exoskeleton Batman is an interesting historical uh, footnote for that period in D.C. Because just a couple years before this, they had broken the bat's spine. And so I guess they were they were playing off of, well, uh, I guess that's how we explain what Batman 20 years from now is like. He's got some exosuit thing going. <laughs> yeah, but I like that. Or he just got better for no reason. Yeah, sure. That, I, but I like that that Batman is human and he's he's, you know, he's old and fallen apart and has an exoskeleton because he, you know. He, that's that's Batman. He's gonna find a way, and uh, I think that I think that's a really interesting bit of that character. I just love the Green Arrow family. I love it so much that he and Diner are still together, and that their daughter has picked up the mantle, and they're like apparently really cool with it. I, mm. That's one of my favorite background bits of color through the whole book. I'm taking a break, not for a sponsor, but to tell you about some other stuff that's available on the Incomparable Network. Do you know about Unjustly Maligned? It is a pop culture show about the sometimes strange things that we all love. 
that other people don't. Every episode features your host, comics and games writer Anthony Johnston, talking to a guest to explain why that thing that you hate is actually really great. Recent episodes include Glenn Fleischman defending the animated series Kim Possible, Al Kennedy defending Doctor Who, the TV movie, Tron defended by Will Wheaton, and of course, Stargate SG-1 defended by me. Uh, check it out, Unjustly Maligned. It's at theincomparable.com slash UMP. And while at The Incomparable, also check out our TV podcast, currently recapping Arrow, The Flash, Daredevil, and Game of Thrones. Every episode, we talk about it at the TV podcast. And now I return you to the Mother Zeppelin. I, uh, I, I'm interested in, in overall, uh, overall reactions to i found a picture of timothy dalton this tony stark too it's totally right i totally called that one also there's a, a george <laughs> avengers george hw bush appears in one of in the pews in the beginning of so the, you'd uh, like our reaction too. to you being so right about no, yeah Iron tell Man. me about how great my reaction was to the no i just uh, kingdom come so so captain marvel I wanted to mention Captain Marvel. Oh, such a tragic figure it, it, in this. It, it's terrible. It's a fascinating way that they use him and that Billy Batson has sort of been brainwashed by Lex Luthor and Captain Marvel ends up being this character that is the is a great he's on the he's off the board and then he's on the board but he's a great threat and then in the end he sort of makes a supreme sacrifice. Um what I love how all of the supervillains are scared to death of him and, yeah. it, and it turns out to it turns out that he's Billy. Yeah, right, he's because not, he's grown up, yeah. so he looks like Captain Marvel, but he's not Captain Marvel. He's still Billy Batson. And, and you know, the backstory here is that Captain Marvel was a from a different comic book publisher, and they were bought by DC Comics, and it's he's sort of been awkwardly over time integrated as Shazam now, because Marvel Comics and trademarks and whatever. Um, he, he's sort of been awkwardly integrated, but has always felt like a little bit of another place. And um, what I, I'm also fascinated by the fact that Captain Marvel, who is be, whose best days were really a long time ago is a, an important mover in a couple of amazing pieces of more modern comic book art which is miracle man and kingdom come because miracle man is essentially the english version of captain marvel originally marvel man with his name changed uh, by alan moore and um and then kid king marvel man mary yeah. marvel man and he says Kimoto, which is a comic author, back, right but yeah you know, it's just it's fascinating to me, and I and I like how he's used here because he's silent and scary and menacing, and then like broken and terrifying because he's been a uh, you know brainwashed by Lex Luthor. It is a it is a fascinating use of that character who who is an outsider in the DC Comics world, and here that's what he is. He's an outsider and kind of a monster, but in the end, shakes it off and shows that he's a hero. I just I think it's a really interesting use of that character. That is it's just so tragic. Yeah. I love that Captain Marvel uses his uh, magic lightning bolt, which is one of Superman's only weaknesses. Yeah. To he, just he, beat he just up keeps saying Superman. Shazam and dodging mm-hmm. and letting Boink. lightning hit. Which yeah. also Superman. happens in Justice League Unlimited in a great episode. And you stole keep... that reference from me, sir. Uh-huh. And I <laughs> need to. So overall, so I mean Marvel's Marvel's is is not I mean, there is a story there, but it's not a story like Kingdom Come, there's so much narrative. And I, I'm curious what everybody thinks of all in all of Kingdom Come as a story. My, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my feeling about it, reading it again, after having not read it for a little while, is 
I, I there are some rough moments where I feel like essentially they're like, okay, there's too much. We're just gonna list a whole bunch of things that happen now, and then we'll get back to the interesting dialogue between the characters later. And it, it feels very compressed. It feels like twelve issues of story put into four issues of of comics in a way that Marvel's obviously doesn't. Um, and I'm just so so that's my only real complaint about it is it feels like there's too much here and it's too compressed and that there are parts that just kind of we 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 pull back and see some big details because there's just not enough time essentially in the running time of the story. Um, but you know it, it is uh, what I like about it is that it is big and crazy and iconic and about what happens if the if you chart like a world with superheroes in it. Uh, where does it end up logically, which is kind of like this? It's There's too many people and they're destroying everything. And what's the place for regular people? But I wanted to throw it to you guys since this is more of a traditional, you know, it's an, it, 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 there's more story here than there is in Marvel's. Does it work in the end? Look, reading it now, does, does uh, what, you know, does Kingdom Come work? Lisa? So do you remember how, oh God, about 10 years ago, um, I think it was Grant Morrison did the seven soldiers and there was like a four issue series on Clary and the witch boy and a four issue series on bullet girl mm, yes. and all. This is kind of the exact opposite of that <laughs> in that you could have done, like Jason said, you could have done like 28, you you could have done like seven separate mini series and linked them all together and, and really embroidered this universe. Um, I would have loved to have seen something like that and gotten more texture from some of the teams, especially the rogue younger teams or the second and third generation um, superheroes. Like, again, you've got like a, a second or third generation Black Canary. You've got a Kid Flash, a whole bunch of those. That said, I think the compressed format kind of works in a way to shock the reader into accepting how dramatically things have changed. Because over the space of a few pages, you have to accept that the Joker and Lois Lane have both been killed. You have to accept that Superman's gone to retirement. You have to accept that um, plain Jane humans, as it were, who who used to be superheroes, are, are, are underground or retired. You have to accept that Hawkman has somehow turned into some weird animal hybrid. Um, so your brain has to kind of readjust and go, okay, here we go. What are the rules? And in that way, I think it makes for really great compact storytelling, but the 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 world builder in me would really like it if it had been stretched out to like, yeah, 28 issues where you do get the spinoff series and you find out a little bit more about how things got to be the way they are or what's going on inside the gulag at the time that while, while Superman and Wonder Woman are having their big old discussion about Brainiac or what Batman's doing to set up all of his chess pieces in the background and why his son with the League of Assassins is, is working where he's working. Because there's a, there are a lot of things that are just lightly sketched out that I would have liked to have seen more from just from my own selfish, nerdy perspective. I'm not a huge fan of the story of Kingdom Come at all. There's sort of a human protagonist, but he feels really shoehorned in there and he never does anything. And we never even really <laughs> get... Well, he has a good talk with Superman at the end. <laughs> well, you, you've got to have a, a, a an audience surrogate in there somewhere. But I don't even know how this guy feels about most of it. It's like he comes in at the beginning of the issue and then we... He's really away. worried. He's really worried about all of it. Yeah. I, I prefer what Marvels did, even if it's not strictly a narrative, to what Kingdom Come does, which has a narrative, but I don't think really executes it all that well. I defy your stance, sir. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I I enjoy Kingdom Come um, 
far more than Marvels. Um, part of that is my affinity for the big, iconic uh, DC universe and the uh, godlike heroes compared to the ground-level stuff that uh, Marvel tends to have. But um, with the exception of the fact that Phil Sheldon really doesn't do enough in the story, I know the point is that he is supposed to be an observer and he's supposed to pass some sort of judgment, but the judgment moment passes, and then all that he is able to do is counsel Superman at the end, and I don't think that that's weighty enough. Other than that, um, I I think that this is a more consistent, uh, better-shaped story than Marvel's because there is actually an arc that goes through it. Um, there is a problem. There is a, uh, there is an attempt at a solution that escalates the problem, and finally there's a catastrophe and, there, uh, and then a denouement. Whereas in Marvel's, it's just it's just slice of life stuff that ends in a tragedy and uh, one guy's disillusionment. So as an adventure story, um, as a story that I think doesn't ask as much of its readers in terms of bringing with them continuity baggage, I I much prefer Kingdom Come. And I think it is a good story on its own. To be fair, Phil Sheldon never actually talks to Superman because he's in Marvel's. But this is a point, is that Norman Norman and Phil are both... Everything the, I have said has just been discredited the, the old because guys. I am hey, old. Norman, get in here! Old guys who observe things yeah. is a connection between these two stories. So that's that, that's uh I was briefly fair. clever there, and then you had to deflate Sorry. me. Sorry, Chip. Erica? Okay, Erica, what did you think <laughs> of Kingdom Come? You know, I actually read Kingdom Come first many years ago, and uh, it, for me, it was it was kind of I loved it at the time. It was a revelation. I've never been a big fan of superhero comics, so I, that's not something I was drawn to. And somebody gave me this and said, "Here, this is different from from the usual. Maybe you'll like this." And I did because it was not at all what I expected from a superhero comic. Um, besides the fact that they were much older, it was it was this really interesting story. Um, you know taking the the idea of superheroes in general and taking it forward quite a bit. And anytime you look at sort of the the ramifications of, of what might happen, that's an interesting science fiction trope for me. So I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was momentous and it gave me uh, a little bit more information in my pocket, I guess, just in general about these key superheroes. So I really liked it. And then cut to yesterday when I started reading Marvel's, um, I felt at first as I was starting to read Marvels, I, I was thinking this is this just feels much more sort of slick and new and than the few DC things that I had read. And I was like, oh, I, I think I'm probably going to end up liking the DC stuff um, much better. But by the time I had gotten through the beginning, like it felt, I felt like Marvel started slow. But by the time I got through that and to the end, I was really enjoying it. Like I said, I was getting that nostalgic family reunion kind of feeling. So, so I was I was in by the end. They they pulled me in, and then uh, just a few hours later, I started reading Kingdom Come, and it was it was coming back to me, and I was getting some of those same same feelings that I had had before, but I felt like it was just. Reading it in in such closeness to Marvels, Marvels was very, very kind of stripped down, and it was elegant. And I felt like there was no elegance in Kingdom Come. There was there was moment and grandioseness, but it was there was so much stuff shoved in there. And I completely agree with everybody who said that it just moves so fast and it's just kind of squished together. To me, 
there are parts of it where I felt like I was reading a fairy tale, like something that's just really stripped down to its most basic bones. You get, you know, you get your catastrophe and then suddenly they're living happily ever after and eating it at planet Krypton. So I, I don't think that it came off as well the second reading because I wasn't able to get into it as emotionally because I felt like I was wading through um, a lot of plot that while interesting conceptually is maybe not as interesting to me now as it was the first time I encountered it because since then I've seen a lot more of that kind of thing. So, I mean, you know, it's perhaps suffering in comparison to the, you know, 10 years or so in between when I read it that right. I've experienced a lot more stuff. It's definitely know. a little more Zack Snydery. I will give you that. Mm-hmm. Moises, what's your uh, verdict on Kingdom Come? Um, I, I think it fundamentally does different things than Marvel's does. For me, Marvel's sure. is a different lens on something and Kingdom Come is doing something more uh, epic and mythic in scope. And that's what I think attracted me to it at a time when when I read it originally that I was getting almost completely out of superhero comics as quickly as I w- had gotten onto them and it was instead reading Vertigo books, things like Preacher and Transmetropolitan at probably too young of an age. Um, <laughs> and the, really, honestly, the, the thing that attracted me to it was the capabilities of what you can do in an Elseworlds story, which it one of the things about the New 52 that drove me the craziest is that it meant no more Elseworlds stuff. And Elseworlds stories make up some of my favorite DC uh, stories because they, they can play outside the bounds of, of reality. As, as we mentioned earlier, of course, now this is Earth-22, Kingdom Come Earth. And the ongoing multiversity thing that is bleeding into or overlapping with this convergence thing that they're doing in the summer, we might get the 28 part tie in issue, you know, digging into different corners of the kingdom come universe that we've never explored. I'm (laughs) just saying that that's actual reality and it's all Grant Morrison's fault. Um, Mm -mm. If, if there is, if there, if there is a thing that, uh, that stuck out to me most, Reading it again, um, DC does a line of reprints called Absolute Editions. They've done one for Watchmen, right. for Hush, for all one. kinds of stuff. The Sandman one's beautiful. The Sandman one is amazing. And I, I, like an idiot, didn't get in on Absolute Kingdom Come, which when you're dealing with this kind of denseness of imagery, rereading this trade paperback from almost 20 years ago where a bunch of the art is cropped off at the at the glue binding – I found myself really desperately wishing that I had that big oversized thing like I do for Planetary and for a number of other things. Um, uh, Kingdom Come is is the sort of thing that I I would want a peek into some of those other little bits of this world. Like, this world is more fascinating to me than the vast majority of what DC has done with their New 52 line and most of their superhero stuff for quite a while. And I just... I, I just... I, I want... I I feel myself wanting more, but being perfectly satisfied not getting more. And even if I pretend like the kingdom follow up never happened, um, I, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm fine with this standing on its own as, for me, the most definitive use of the concepts behind Twilight of Superheroes that Alan Moore put together. That uh, that I I think anybody could get away with in this world of multiverses and realities crashing into each other and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's uh, like I said, I, I, what, what attracts me to it is the, that freedom to tell a story that it doesn't need to fit into anything else. It's just an interesting story. And this is this mythic 
Uh, you know, Superman as as Jesus is an actually really interesting idea, a really interesting <laughs> story. We we've seen a bunch of different variations on it. I mean, you know, he was sent from another world to you know, Krypton's only son. Sent to, yeah, we know, we got it. <laughs> um, but it it, it is uh, it, it's it's a fascinating story. I after after you know not having read it for you know five years or seven years or something and revisiting it i i i have forgotten its flaws and uh remembered its virtues and you know i like i said i think that the story is there are a lot of moments where the story just kind of gets there's a lot of detail but it's just like to move us to the next uh scene with dialogue where the characters are discussing what they're doing there's a lot of comp- compression happening you know, in a, an era where there's so much decompression in comics, it is quite jarring at times to see the level of, like, amazing compression that happens to fit more stuff into Kingdom Come. Yeah, it felt really weird wanting some decompression, which is the thing that I find myself <laughs> decrying at every turn, uh. every chance I get. Um, but I, th- yeah, it, it just, it, there's panels you, here that should be multiple pages, right? But that's just not the story that they're telling. And that's yeah. fine. I, I like a comic that leaves an impression that there's so much more that, you know, if you sit here and stare at this one panel, like an oil painting for the next five hours, you'll totally understand it, man. Right. I kind of like that. For me, that was kind of overwhelming mm. just being the complete noob that, yeah. that, in in Marvels, there were it, it, it sort of the it, there was a warmth to it, and it made me curious about what it was in that was in the background that was going on. Whereas here, it was just a you know it's not a wall of sound; it's a wall of superheroes yes. coming at me, and <laughs> yeah. and it was just <laughs> it was too DC much. That's the DC way. <laughs> well, the, the title in and of itself is more imposing than what I think modern DC would call something like this, which would be something like Justice League, The Revelation. Mm. And, um, <laughs> oh, it's funny because you're right. <laughs> that, like, that's really what that, the and they if they made an animated movie out of it, it would be called Justice League Revelation. Um, the, the religious uh, part of it is something that, that I, I just wanted to call out. Um, I'm not an overtly religious person. I'm not really a religious person at all. But the thing that I like about the inclusion of it, whether you give a crap about one religion or another, is that for me, where other things like Infinity Crusade and crossover events and everything have employed religious imagery and just really laid it on thick and made the most ham-fisted, crazily, terribly wrought religious allegories, in this one, it really it works for me. In, in the kind of sense of this being the superheroes Ragnarok, the, the kind of thing that Grant Morrison wrote a book called Super Gods about, about these mythic characters being the pantheon of Olympus for the modern age in, in terms of the way that we look at them and think about them. And instead of taking on a they, – they guide the way that we live our lives. They guide the way that we BS about stuff on podcasts. Um, I, I think there's, there is something interesting there and that – that it isn't incredibly crazily didactic, uh, I, I I think it carries that off rather well. You could say the inclusion of the uh, the perspective of the audience being a pastor himself that that's a bridge too far for you, but it's not for me. And I'm I'm usually the first one to rail against that kind of stuff as just being oh great, well where's the where's the priest and the rabbi? Well, the whole the whole <laughs> premise here is essentially what if the superheroes bring about the end times? I mean that is the premise. You just gotta go with it. I think yeah, you have a, a bunch of super powered people that shoot lasers out of their eyes and thunder 
out of their ass. You know, they're god, they're gods. <laughs> Let's just—I mean, that's what—that's what this is saying is that they're they're the gods. The gods walk among us like they did in the olden days of the you know Greek myths, and this is the result, which is the end of days is upon us. And uh, I think that's yeah, that's interesting. But it certainly—I <laughs> mean, it certainly takes itself seriously at times with all of that, which is I think one of the charming things about the ending because the ending is just delightfully human and doesn't take itself seriously. And it's a great relief after the operatic drama of the end of the world and these moral decisions and all these horrible things that are happening in the rest of the book. Yeah, you have a, a Planet Hollywood theme restaurant where the Carrie Kelly Robin is waiting on them. Apparently, Booster Gold is the manager. I noticed uh, that Booster Gold time. owns yes. the place. Yeah. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he's also... referred to as the manager. Oh, oh the but... manager. Okay. I, I, I thought I remembered him as being the owner. And B shows up to yeah. talk to him to another, another talk frame. To, frame. It's talk, very funny. Go talk to Booster Gold about that. Anything more about Kingdom Come before we wrap it up that people have on their agenda that they wanted to get to and that we failed to get to? I applaud them for trying to write a story outside of continuity. But in DC, every time you try that, you just create an entire new, new universe continuity. of its own continuity. <laughs> it's impossible. My only other thing to say about it was just that the the one character that I had any real emotional connection to in this was Wonder Woman. Yeah. And simply because when I was a kid, I had a book. It wasn't even a comic book. It was like a hardcover, thin children's book. And I think it might have even come with a tape that you could play along with it. I'm not even sure. About the, the origin of Wonder Woman. And I, that's the only... Marvel or, or DC comic book thing that I had in my life for decades. And but I loved it. I loved it so much. So I've always sort of had this affinity for Wonder Woman, even though I don't actually know how she developed in the real comic books. So I got to this and I just sort of had this uh, sort of ephemeral picture in my head. And then there was this Wonder Woman who was so much more real and stark and she had emotional issues going on there was turmoil inside her and her life outside was not going great and i i I think it was really good it have very mixed emotions about it because i want her to be my you know happy perfect lady but on the other hand i want characters to be interesting and you know diverse and and have have issues and have troubles because that's the way the world works so i i want to just give a thumbs up to wonder woman here because she was uh, a pretty detailed layered character that was not what i was expecting but i think was refreshing to me as a reader all right well i feel like we have reached we have reached the end lots of alex ross art to digest i enjoyed marvels more in the reread but i think that marvels is a it's easy to enjoy Marvels more because it is that that widescreen and big splash pages and nostalgia trip. It, whereas Kingdom Come is this super detailed, compressed story. They're very they are very different, despite the fact that I always group them together because of when they came out, when I discovered them, and the fact that the art is so similar because it's the same guy. But they are very different. One is backward looking. One is kind of forward looking. And I guess now from the perspective of not in the 90s, sideways looking, um, but really interesting, uh, both of them. And I, I was glad to to revisit them. And I was glad that uh, you all were here to visit them with me. So thanks to everybody. Um, I will now thank you in turn because that is my style as a host of a podcast. Monty, Ashley, you were here and I thank you for it. Uh, face front, uh, true, true believer. Fair enough. Moises Chuyan, you were also here, and I thank you for it. 
Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful breath of fresh air to uh, to myself being in the middle of a massive crossover on crossovers epic on my own comics <laughs> yes, podcast. Yes, and please visit esn.fm. I will I will give you a link to the beginning of this never ending series of crossovers. Shadow Network. <laughs> I'm sold. Moises has many podcasts. There, Chip Sutter. Thank you for joining us. You were also present tonight. A, a jumble of images, a cacophony of apocalyptic verse. It still <laughs> makes so little sense. <laughs> Lisa Schmeiser, you were, you two you two were present. Surprise, you were here too. Hello, Shazam, Goodbye. Shazam, Shazam, Shazam. Well put. And Erica Ensign, you you two participated tonight. Thank you. Excelsior. Oh, well played. I think she wins. Yes, I think so. You've got to you've got to do the Stan Lee voice, or it doesn't have as much punch. Excelsior. I'm yeah. okay not being punchy. You don't, you don't. <laughs> That's Stan Lee, the official movie actor of Willie Lumpkin, as seen yes. in Marvels. Yes, as seen in Marvels. Right. Exactly right. And I, I, I'm Jason Snell. I was also here. And now I'm <laughs> going to go away, as is this podcast. You Stay tuned for whatever is next in your podcast app. This has been The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. <laughs> stay tuned for The Flophouse or Nightmare or something. <laughs> or, some, or whatever. Or <laughs> whatever.